Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I am your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Julia Mickenberg about her book, American Girls in Red Russia, Chasing the American Dream, published by the University of Chicago Press. And I've been intrigued by American women who went to the Soviet Union since I read Margaret Wetland's memoir, 50 Russian Winters, quite a while ago. So I'm excited to learn about why American women chose to travel to and live in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s, and more about their experiences. And I have to admit, I'm also a little curious to see how someone trained as an American, an Americanist, an American studies scholar, approaches Soviet history. So welcome to New Books in Russian Studies, Julia. Thank you very much for having me. And I'd like to start by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and especially how you came to be interested in writing this book about American women traveling to the Soviet Union. Well, it's a, that's kind of a long story um, that how I got interested in this topic, but to go uh, further back, I had long been interested in, in Russia and Russian history. Um, I graduated from college in 1990, so it was right at the end of the Cold War and at that time, everybody was studying Russian and Russian language and history. Um, I had, as a child, even been quite interested. Um, my own kind of ethnic background is Russian. And um, my grandparents had been kind of radicals. And I remember going to the Russian circus as a kid. They went to um, the Soviet Union in the 70s, brought back a balalaika. So it, it had been this kind of... Um, family interest for me. And then in um, college, I studied Russian for a couple of years and took courses in Russian history and literature and had thought actually about becoming a Russian studies major, but I got a little bit, I confess, uh, frustrated at the difficulty of learning Russian. And, um, And I was also really interested in American culture and that wound up just seeming an easier route to go, but I never really let go of the interest in Russian stuff. And um, I first, well, my dissertation and what became my first book were on um, children's literature and the left. And I've really long been a scholar of um, the American left. And I came to feel that the Soviet Union is this uh, elephant in the room when we talk about the history of the of the US left. It's kind of this embarrassment, <laughs> if you will, the attraction of, Many people, not just communists, but a broad swath of liberals, progressives in what was happening um, in the Soviet Union. So that had been in the back of my mind and um, trying trying to grapple with some of that was was interesting to me. The specific um, project that I came to um, kind of began in what is um, chapter three of the book, the discussion of the um, American colony at Kuzbus and the the figure of Ruth Epperson Kennel, who was a children's book writer 
who I discovered um, had, there was a sketch of her by Theodore Dreiser. I had looked in her archive because she was one of the first children's book writers to write um, these, you know, books about the new Russia, Children and Soviet Union. And she published these books in uh, 1931 and 1932. And looking at that, I, um, came to learn about her living in this basically American utopian colony in Siberia in the early 20s. That got me fascinated, but I was um, particularly interested in what attracted her as a woman. This idea of, of transforming home life and living communally, um, getting out of domestic drudgery. Uh, and I, um, it was through her that I both discovered other women, and then when I started looking at scholarship, particularly the scholarship around sort of Americans who were drawn to the Soviet Union, which is not a, a huge scholarship, uh, there, was, there was really nothing out there that was looking at the particular attractions to women. So, and that was also through conversations with some people about, well, where might I um, actually intervene in an existing conversation as far as well I don't know if you want to ask me but as far as coming into this as a scholar of American studies it's a real challenge and I had a lot of worries about doing that and um, I did uh, go back and start studying Russian again um, as a, right after getting tenure <laughs> which was <laughs> fun and challenging and humbling and um, and just read a ton and started going to conferences. And, um, you know, I, de I definitely, it took me more than 10 years to write the book, but I'm sure um, there are all kinds of gaps that come from my not having been, you know, trained as a Russianist. But I hope other kinds of perspectives that I bring because of my training. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's one of the things I appreciated about the book, that it is oftentimes within our own scholarly fields, certain things are taken as given or, or just our perspectives are shaped by the field we're in. So having someone who is um, sort of an outsider uh, to come in and to write this history, I think, as actually makes a great contribution. So I, I certainly got a lot out of the book. So, and I look forward now to that conversation, but you begin the book by saying that long before the Bolshevik revolution, that the revolutionary Russian woman had become an almost mythic figure in the United States. And indeed there is a link between these Russian radicals and Russian radicalism and the um, engagement with feminist ideas in the United States. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, now I'm not recalling her name, but there's a graduate student at SUNY Binghamton who's writing about this, this earlier period now. And I actually, I found it really fascinating. Part of the point was that I wanted to, to look at this as not um, strictly a, um, you know, a US, something that begins with the Bolshevik Revolution, which it's not. R Russia has this particular uh, call as the kind of land of revolution, you know, going back certainly to the 1870s and 80s, but even um, potentially earlier. Uh, 
there was um, an organization called the Friends of Russian Freedom, the American Friends of Russian Freedom. Many of the people who founded that organization were children of um, abolitionists. Um, some were abolitionists themselves, um, but the most kind of active person in that organization was Alice Stone Blackwell, who was also an important um, suffragist. She was an editor of a suffrage journal. Her father was Henry Blackwell, a famous um, abolitionist, and her mother was Alice Stone, one of the um, important early feminists. Uh, and she worked closely with Emma Goldman, the fiery anarchist, to bring Catherine Breshkovsky, who became known as the little grandmother of the Russian Revolution, um, to the United States. And um, more broadly, um, Breshkovsky was the figure because she was in the United States from, for almost a year from 1904 to 1905 and she attracted huge crowds um, to rallies and personally met a lot of people who um, were then inspired by her stories of revolutionary struggle and imprisonment and et cetera, exile in Siberia. Um, but there were stories pretty often in um, the American women's press of um, various revolution female revolutionaries in Russia who were uh, assassinating terrible people <laughs> in Russia. Um, so, you know, and they called themselves terrorists in uh in today's discourse, the terrorist is kind of uniformly considered bad um, and they're associated with attacking innocent people, but it was precisely the opposite that the Russian terrorists were doing. They were, they were specifically targeting um, what they would call kind of enemies of, of Russian freedom. I don't know if they use that term specifically. So, um, but yeah, I found all over, I did searches of different um, feminist and suffrage journals and found um, a lot of articles about um, different, you know, Maria Spiridonova or Vera Zaslich and other um, kind of well-known um, figures in Russia were very highly regarded um, in the United States. And um, the fact that they were resorting to violence was a, was a representative of how horrible things had gotten for them, that these, you know, tender, sensitive women would feel no other choice but to resort to um, violence. And their, their, um, their militants, I think, was a real inspiration for women in the United States who were um, just becoming um, radicalized as the feminist movement was heating up in the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm certain that this um, interest pre-1917 and, and looking across that divide um, or making that divide a little blurrier is definitely important because I'm sure that the, that influenced then people who chose to go to the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. So who, who were these people? Who were these Americans in general who were going to, to travel and particularly to live in the Soviet Union after the Bolshevik Revolution? Well, there's a, there's a real range, and I was I was hoping in um, the way that I set up the chapters to get at some of this range. So early on, there were people who were going um, as relief workers uh, during the Russian famine, which starts uh, 
very shortly, um, while the Civil War is still going on, beginning in the summer of 1921, uh, I, there I focused on women who uh, joined up with the American Friends Service Committee, the Quaker Relief Organization. You didn't actually have to be Quaker to join that organization. And a number of people who volunteered to help starving Russians uh, were in fact already radicalized and were trying to find ways to get into the Soviet Union. There was an allied blockade going on and um, the Bolsheviks had also recently restricted um, immigration. So there were people uh, who were coming in. They certainly shared the humanitarian concerns of other workers, but they were specifically interested in the Russian Revolution. And um, I, I talk about them as um, child savers who were interested in these Russian children as potential child saviors, um, because there was both the kind of the threat represented by sickly starving Russian children and the hope of, of these, these children who could become, you know, new men and new women who would, who would create socialism. So you had relief workers, you also had people going and um, joining um, communes. Uh, so uh, Seattle Commune was a, was a famous one. I think there were, um, now I don't remember the exact number, there were something like 26 um, communes that were, that were established by foreigners. Um, a large proportion of them were all Americans. And as I mentioned, I talked specifically about the Kuzbus colony, which was quite famous, got a lot of press, um, particularly because a number of people defected from it and wrote kind of sensational stories in the, in the press. Um, but they were, the people who went to those colonies were, you know, definitely radical and interested in, in having a hand in building socialism. There were um, also pretty large numbers of Jews who, um, a fair number of whom had immigrated to the United States um, as a result of uh, pogroms, particularly um, after, well, before and after the 1905 revolution. Some of those people now went back after the Bolshevik revolution and had high hopes for a very um, different situation. They were attracted, you know, they were impressed by the idea that much of the Bolshevik leadership had, um, that there were Jews in the Bolshevik leadership. And, um, I mean, Russianists will know about a lot of this stuff, but the um, um was the Jewish colony that was founded in 1928, had all kinds of complicated uh, problems, but that was an attraction uh, to many um, Jews um, in the United States, not necessarily ones who had lived in Russia before, but often the children of these Russian Jewish immigrants. Um, Particularly during the 1930s, you had many people going over um, who were working class and not necessarily politicized who went to the Soviet Union simply for jobs because there was a depression in the United States and um, lots of work, well-paying work in the Soviet Union. Um, so that was probably the largest moment of American um, immigration, but it also just became sort of a lot of those were, there was a combination of, of engineers and then industrial workers. Most of those people were men. Some of them brought their wives, but a lot of um, kind of adventurous, more educated women also started going, looking for jobs, um, 
teaching, working on newspapers, um, getting involved in any kind of social service organization. So it started attracting um, people who were, uh, you know, I, I talk about the, the parallel to the American emigration to Paris in the 20s. If you were going to Paris in the 20s, it was like you were sick of, you know, bourgeois American culture and you kind of wanted to get away um, it was a kind of dropping out, though, whereas going to the Soviet Union was the sense that you could help build something, create something new. And um, there was, uh, and I also, um, people were very interested in the, um, the arts in the Soviet Union. So people were going uh, to uh, learn from and witness uh, particularly theater and film. Um, so looking at the, the work that filmmakers were doing, um, everybody was seeing tons of theater. Um, I talk also about a group of African-American um, Harlem Renaissance figures who um, went in 1932 to work on a film that um, was going to be called Black and White. That was going to be the first honest film about American race relations, and they believed that that film could not be made in the United States, but it could be made in the Soviet Union. And in fact, it could not be made in the Soviet Union. It was um, canceled um, because of fears uh, that were threats that um, the U.S. would not recognize the Soviet Union, which they which they did in 1933. Um, they wouldn't. They said they wouldn't recognize them if this this film was made. Um, so it wasn't. But the people who worked on that film um, or the cast of the film most famously was um, Langston Hughes, uh, but I focus on, on women in that group, including Dorothy West and Louise Thompson Patterson. Um, many of those people stayed on um, for a year or more and had amazing experiences. And so, um, and African-Americans in particular were interested in this idea um, that, um, that the Soviets had somehow conquered the, the race relation problems. Um, and they looked at, particularly at the treatment of Soviet national minorities, which had their own complicated history that Russianists will be um, quite familiar with. But they um, saw these parallels between what was happening, um, how, how um, the Soviets were dealing with their race uh, issues in their minds successfully as compared to real um, failures in the United States. They were also treated extremely well when they were, when they were visiting. So they, um, so they like that. Um, and I could also say more about the, the particular things that, that attracted women. Um, well, let's do that because we are, we'll actually talk in more detail about those different categories, but what was it about the new Soviet woman that was particularly appealing to American women who went to the Soviet Union? So it was on a, it was on a couple of levels. One was that these, um, so one was the, the kind of policies and the um, practices to a certain extent that were put in place um, shortly after the revolution. So um, really right after the revolution, the revolution marriage laws were changed. So um, divorce was made easy and um, simpler. Um, abortion was made legal and free. Um, in 
marriages, uh, women could take their, or husbands could take the wives' names. Um, women gained um, equal property rights. They had um, equal pay for equal work. Again, legally, there were, there were problems in getting this um, to actually happen. Um, there were um, supposedly dining halls established uh, and childcare facilities so that women could you know, um, be released from certain kinds of household duties so that they could work. Uh, they were given generous maternity leave policies, all these things that women did not have in the United States, um, in many cases still do not have in the United States. So these were deemed um, very attractive. And this, um, you know, certainly going back to before the revolution, Russian women had had um, a strong role in revolutionary um, organizations and um, had this image of um, being certainly not all Russian women, but this, but the radicalized Russian women were um, were educated, thoughtful, involved in um, you know the problems of the world and not just a, a narrow feminine sphere. And so this um, the new Russian woman was often you know in a way, a little bit like the image of the Rosie the Riveter um, during World War II, so she could, um, you know, have a beautiful face, but have getting her, um, her hands dirty and um, kind of, um, you know, involved in, um, you know, working, but she could be a mother, she could also um, be involved in the, in the problems of the world, and having this kind of larger access to these larger spheres that many women in the United States would feel that they themselves lacked. Um, so this could be a very attractive image. I, I think the, um, the novel Moscow Yankee by Myra Page um, really gives this kind of evocative image of, of that's, that speaks to, uh, if you think of Paige herself as an author who's, who did spend time in the Soviet Union, but clearly um, admiring these, these young women as symbolizing this, this, this new kind of woman. Um, some of those fictional depictions are almost more powerful than, than even the nonfiction ones, but there's plenty of nonfiction too. So this idea that women um, did not need to be relegated to kind of maternal work really um, comes out in the American response to the civil war. And you talk about how women who became in, involved in relief work, as you've already mentioned, started to reframe that kind of humanitarian work as um, serving um, peace, as being opposed to militarism and imperialism, and away from a um, kind of a maternal uh, relief work and around just saving children. So can you talk some more about that? And particularly Jessica Smith, who was with the American Friends Service Committee, and you use her as an example of that. She's a really interesting figure who I, um, in some ways, wished I, she doesn't have a collection of papers anywhere. And so I had to gather um, from bits and pieces about her. But she was active in the National Women's Party, uh, which was the more militant of the two main suffrage organizations in the United States. 
And then she became the treasurer of a group called the American Women's Emergency Committee, which merged, sorry, emerged from the National Women's Party. And there um, they used this maternalist rhetoric, but I think quite strategically demanding um, milk and medicine for Russian mothers and babies as a reason to end an allied blockade of Russia. So there was a blockade that had been um, instituted, the United States more unofficially than officially, but it, um, it went on even past the end of World War I. And it was uh, sort of to punish Russia for withdrawing from World War I and making a separate peace from Germany. And so they were saying that this was, um, you know, hurt, hurting innocent people rather than the people who were uh, responsible for this. She um, had been involved in the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, and then she was one of the people who uh, volunteered with the American Friends Service Committee and got sent over to Russia in um, 1922 or 1923. And she then takes charge of, ultimately takes charge of um, the AFSC's uh, publicity efforts in Russia. And then this really, I don't know what year she joined the Communist Party, but she becomes a major figure in the, in the American Communist Party and really devoted her entire life to a kind of, I guess you could say publicity work, you could say propaganda work, editing communist publications um, like Soviet Russia Today and the, um, the New World Review. Um, but your question had been about the, um, the peace rhetoric. Maybe you could say the question again as I'm kind of wandering here. <laughs> That's quite all right. And it's really around this uh, changing of the framing of this work rather than as women, we are concerned about children and so we have to go help save them to this idea that by going out and engaging in this relief work that women were not just being maternal, but that they were actually being active in these other realms in terms of promoting peace and opposing militarism and imperialism. So it's, it's taking this political stance um, rather than a, a focus on um, can women's maternal urgings are going to push them into these situations to care for the children. So that's what I was trying to get at, which reflects also that new Soviet woman idea that, that, that she's not sort of bound to act in these maternal ways, but that, that there are other driving forces. Yeah. And there was also, I mean, I think there was a, there was a very strategic use of a maternalist discourse mm -hmm. to make it socially acceptable for women to be going abroad. I don't think Jessica, someone like Jessica Smith was as concerned about being socially acceptable as maybe some other people, but I think she was very careful in the rhetoric that she used in publicity pieces that she wrote. And even somebody like Helen Keller talked about, um, did use this maternal rhetoric to talk about, oh, that children are suffering in this wonderful land. Um, but that kind of rhetoric, um, even, even the dancer Isadora Duncan uses, I think there is something actually genuine in that in that rhetoric of where women were supposed to be concerned for children. We do care about children. That becomes a kind of gateway, though, to or that gives women permission, in a sense, to to enter the wider world. And there's a longer history of that, I think, 
um, and 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 legacy of that of that becoming a a way for women to um, have a certain kind of authority in the public sphere. Certainly, going and many of those were women who did not have children of their own. Um, so it's the kind of mothering the world. But as you say, um, that's that's also for gaining the authority to go well beyond what we might consider a maternal sphere. Mm-hmm. Well, I can understand why you became uh, captured by Ruth Epperson Kennel's story. Uh, that really is an, a fascinating story. And she um, is not just in chapter three, but reappears at various other points in the book because she had such an extended um, life and um, influential life in many ways as an American woman in the Soviet Union. So tell us about how she ended up in this um, American colony in the Kuzbas. And in particular, how did she reconcile her dreams for a new future with the harsh reality of living in this colony? I came to conclude, I guess, starting at the end of your question, I came to conclude that suffering was sort of part of part of the pleasure for not just for her, but for a lot of people, because it made the experience more authentic in a way. Um, She, uh, so she and her husband were, uh, well, kind of sort of goes back, but she was kind of dissatisfied with domestic life. She was originally from Oklahoma. She had moved to California. She was working as a children's librarian. She was strongly opposed to World War I. Um, had been involved in kind of um, socialist slash um, industrial workers of the world, um, politics and arts in San Francisco, uh, where they lived. And they read a piece in um, The Liberator, which was a communist newspaper by uh, Mike Gold, who talked about the wanted volunteers for Siberia. And you know, it had, it seemed like, well, this is it. This is our chance to go and take a part and take part in the revolution that they and other people have been very excited about it happening. So they read this piece in, um, they went in 1922. I'm trying to think, yeah, it must've been in 1922 that they, um, that they read it and they pretty quickly uh, signed up. It was with the Society for Technical Aid to Soviet Russia, which was one of the main organizations that was sponsoring American colonies in Russia. And um, so they volunteered, got accepted and went over. Uh, There were, I think, four or five different um, shiploads of Americans who were coming and she became kind of a central figure in the colony. Uh, Just about everybody knew her. So she, um, and one of the striking things about her story was that she left her, they had, or I shouldn't say she, but she and her husband left their 18 month old son with the husband's mother. And she was pretty torn about doing this initially, but then there, there's correspondence with various family members where she um, she was on the one hand having nightmares about leaving her son, but then saying things like, actually, I hardly miss him at all. It's actually fine. Um, and I think um, she was, she was kind of thrilled by this idea of that she was going over as a worker. Many of the other women who went over went as wives of the workers, but she was going as a worker herself and she had multiple jobs there. She uh, ran the library that started later. She 
kind of collected the mail. She was secretary to the main um, engineer. And then she also kind of took it upon herself to be chronicler of the colony. And she wrote a series of articles published in The Nation, one of which had, um, uh, I can't remember if that was the title, but she talked about what they were doing as, as building not a new Atlantis, but a new Pennsylvania, um, and really talking about it as this kind of continuing the American frontier impulse, but doing it in Siberia. And there, you know, there's, there's comparisons going back to um, really going back to the 1860s of, you know, the U S and Russia, they, they have um, slavery ending almost the same time as serfdom. They both have this expansive um, frontier region with native populations. And so Siberia um, has this kind of um, resonance somehow with the American West and this frontier region that they can expand and have new possibilities at this moment where possibilities seem to be ending <laughs> in the United States. How does she reconcile her kind of dreams for the experience with what she finds there? Um, I mean, what she found there was, uh, you know, there were all kinds of petty disputes uh, about the communal living and um, that she very much got caught up in. Uh, she was, she had a, a very complicated relationship with the women who went as um, dependents and who she considered them sort of um, parasites un unfairly, I think. Um, she, uh, Part of what's striking about her story, of course, is that she fell in love when she got there or shortly after she got there and um, her husband left in a dispute between the, the IWWs or Wobblies and communists and, um, and she stayed on. She said she wanted to fulfill her, her contract. They had a two-year contract, but actually she had met this other guy, another American who was a communist and an engineer. And, um, it was almost like her sort of um, political awakening was accompanied by a sexual awakening. And she wrote a, a piece, she wrote several pieces in the American Mercury, didn't refer to her own experience, but she says that she, that several, several um, marriages, I guess, uh, fell apart, usually on the wives um, initiative. And so this seemed to be a somewhat common thing of women getting there and um, discovering all new things about themselves. It was like a whole set of social possibilities opening. And so even though there were all kinds of disappointments, it was still very exciting to feel like there were all kinds of new possibilities of trying out other ways of living socially, interpersonally, um, everything else. Um, I found her a very troubling figure in all kinds of ways, um, partly because she was leaving her child, how she treated her husband, how she reconciled certain things that were happening in the Soviet Union. But I also found her um, sympathetic in lots of ways. Um, and certainly there was something familiar about the kinds of struggles that she was going through, because I think it's you know, any woman with 
career, uh, career aspirations or kind of searching for something more winds up having many of these same kinds of um, struggles and maybe making some of the same, not the same precisely, but similar kinds of um, compromises in order to, in order to try to get what they, what they think they want. And I mean, I guess what was most troubling about her is um, that she seemed to have a critical consciousness um, through the 1920s. And at a certain point, um, she develops this very interesting relationship with Theodore Dreiser because after, after her time in the, um, at the Kuzbis colony, she moved to Moscow and started working in the Comintern as a librarian. And then she was hired as, as Dreiser's um, private tour guide during his um, Russian tour in 1927 to 1928. Um, and she remained um, pretty uh, open-eyed about a lot of what was going on, but in correspondence with Dreiser, which continued for the rest of his life, I could, I could almost tell the moment that she joined the Communist Party, probably around 1935. Um, and then it's like she loses all that critical distance and becomes a kind of Stalinist mouthpiece and much less interesting as a figure, I have to say. Um, but she then was defending the Soviet Union for the rest of her life. And in the 1970s, wrote a book about Theodore Dreiser in the Soviet Union, um, as if, sort of as a way of speaking to the young radicals of the 1960s and saying, you know, see this very important man of letters uh, was interested in this place that you, you shouldn't be um, dismissing as for its radical possibilities today. So she's a strange and complicated figure. Yeah, a, a lot of the women are strange and complicated figures. And another yes. one along those lines is Anna Louise Strong, who um, yes. is another powerful personality and was asked to start the English language Moscow News in 1930, although she had already had um, a, quite a bit of engagement with the Soviet Union in the 1920s. So tell us about her. How did she come to the Soviet Union and how did she come to this very powerful position of establishing the, the English language um, kind of organ of communication for, on behalf of the Soviet Union? Um, well, it would seem to be a powerful position, but she learned quickly that she had much less power than she thought she did. But she's, um, yeah, she's, she's another figure who I, um, I guess I found her especially tragic uh, because she had so such idealism about the Soviet Union that, you know, she was aware of things not being as wonderful as she made them out to be. She was arguably, I would say, the sort of biggest American, the word propaganda is a, is a, um, is a word that has multiple kinds of resonances, but arguably she was the, the biggest American propagandist for the Soviet Union, although I don't, I think that she felt that what she was writing was um, true, but she left out things that she knew because it didn't, um, it didn't help to create the world that she was wanting to create through her work. But she, the way that she got to the Soviet Union was she also joined with the American Friends Service Committee. Um, she was somewhat disingenuous in her 
application because she um, she had asked specifically to go to Russia, and they said that she couldn't go. She was already known as a as a radical at that time. She she had been involved in um, the Seattle general strike and working at a socialist paper there um, in 1919, and she volunteered specifically to go to Russia. They told her she could go to Poland and she went to Poland. And then um, once news of famine in Russia came out, she basically uh, told her immediate supervisor that she was going to Russia and didn't, didn't wait for an answer from the headquarters in Philadelphia. And by the time they realized she was there, it was kind of too late to stop her. Um, and then she gets, typhus and um, nearly died and they had to spend a lot of money with a private nurse who died taking care of her. Um, so, um, but at that point, and even though she'd had, you know, terrible, um, you know, difficulty and trials when she got there, she had sort of like, that, that's all right. I'm, uh, I'm dedicated to this place. She was, she saw, you know, so much death and tragedy but it made her kind of more determined that, that, you know, she was very inspired by what she called the creators in chaos, people who she thought were still idealistic and making things happen and not deterred by all the difficulties and wanted to be one of those. So she kind of made it her business to be um, writing to, you know, in a way that common Americans would understand about um, what was happening in Russia. Uh, so she was writing for um, many different American magazines and she was living in Moscow, but she would go back every year to the United States and give lectures. She was the, um, in uh, 1924, she got made um, chief, I guess they called her, of uh, the John Reed um, colony on the Volga, which was a colony for children who were too young for children's homes, but too old to be on their own. And she wrote all kinds of uh, pamphlets and a book um, and raised all, uh, lots of money um, for this colony before eventually, you know, bailing on it and deciding it was um, that the money was being mismanaged. There were um, <laughs> uh, Russian bureaucrats who were trying to extort money from her um, if she, uh, you know, for to, for the colony ostensibly, but they seemed to be not using the money properly that she was getting them. Um, again, this didn't um, deter her from uh, still supporting the revolution. And when the opportunity came to start this English language um, newspaper, this seemed like the great opportunity. She had really wanted to do something for the Americans um, who were living in Moscow, which by the time um, the paper was started in 1930s, there was quite a large community, at least a thousand people. Um, so this became a paper specifically geared at um, technical experts um, who, were, who were there. And she wanted a paper that would be independent, uh, which somewhat naive to believe that there could even be such a, such a paper. Uh, but that would be, you know, fun to read and even funny and would have news, you know, would be um, supportive of what's going on, 
but would be independent and would have news of uh, sports events and theater and things of interest to the community and would also keep people informed who maybe weren't speaking English. Um, but she very quickly um, was relegated to the sidelines as various um, Russian bureaucrats or communists were taking over. Um, and there's a kind of striking scene in her autobiography, which was um, this sort of stunning story of her um, complaining about all the people, all the machinations of people taking over and um, not letting her do things the way she wanted to on the newspaper. And she actually got a personal meeting with Stalin um, and describes him in almost godlike terms. She was totally thrilled um, in meeting with him. Um, and she, it, it's, it's featured in her memoir. She had hoped that this memoir was going to gain her entrance into the communist party. But what's also striking about her story is that she was neither the Russian or the American communist party, um, wanted her. And, um, so there were, um, she also had a lot of personal, I mean, one of the other things that was interesting about writing that chapter on the Moscow News is that I had access to the papers of not just her, but a number of uh, women who had been correspondents on the Moscow News. And so I was able to see different sides of the same picture. And so she would sort of worry that people didn't like her. And then I would read other people's correspondence and they were actually making fun of her, you know, joking about her as this, you know, pushy and um, overwhelming work ethic and driving everybody crazy and um, a little too starry eyed. Um, so, um, you know, particularly this figure of um, Millie Bennett, who was her housemate and was a kind of hard boiled journalist who had a little more skepticism about what was going on. But again, um, even if she acted like she was skeptical, winds up staying in the Soviet Union for six years and ultimately joining the Communist Party as well. So, yeah, and that um, was actually my next question: was to was Millie Bennett, who um, seems to be less inclined to look at what's happening in the Soviet Union through these kind of rose-colored glasses of propaganda, and yet she also still stays. And I think that this. Um, what you talked about um, at the beginning about this ambivalence or kind of complicated relationship between the American left and the Soviet Union um, is really playing out in very, you know, tangible ways in the in these women as they're there working and um, believing in these ideals, and yet also seeing, particularly in the '30s, um, the more destructive sides of of the system. So can you talk yeah. more about Millie and can, how, how she approached this and, and kind of how she tried to deal with those discrepancies? And yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, that I was particularly trying to get at was the disjuncture between, or what often was a disjuncture between people's private writings in, um, you know, in diaries and letters or memoirs that were often unpublished and what they wrote about publicly. And um, Millie Bennett's correspondence with her friends is very funny and fun to read. Um, but she was constantly, you know, cracking jokes about 
everything that was happening in the Soviet Union and also telling people, you know, assuring people that she was only going to stay a year and also her ability to joke about things that were um, actually quite horrifying was, um, was fascinating. I mean, I guess the biggest one was that she had um, gotten involved with a young, an actor who was younger than her, who had a, um, supposedly had a homosexual past and um, sodomy was not made officially illegal, I believe until maybe 1933, but um, her, she had married this guy and he had, um, um, he had, he was arrested and he was sent to a colony in Siberia and she wrote these letters of like, yeah, he's doing, you know, he's doing, folk dances to, you know, for the revolution and agitprop. She just uh, kind of made jokes about him. Um, and, you know, how does she reconcile? She also, um, she also, by 1935, she wrote pieces. She wrote something in New York Times that was um, kind of justifying or explaining why, I guess it would have been 36, why the, um, why, the Soviets had outlawed abortion um, and why that was reasonable. Although in her private writing, she was very critical um, of the laws um, or the law outlawing abortion. I think um, in some letters to friends, she talked about, um, I think another, in one, I mean, the most striking thing she said is something like it's, um, it's like any other faith you see things that, you know, you know, are terrible and you tell yourself, well, the facts don't matter. And it was like the, the larger project of building socialism seemed like such a worthy goal to her that, and to many people, I think that there was this sense of, well, maybe these particular awful things are, are costs of it. Um, she would seem to have she would seem to have open eyes, but they couldn't be that open if she if she was able to rationalize things that admittedly did, you know, shock and and appall her. And sometimes it was almost like it was so interesting and fascinating to be there that it was. Um, and, and that was another thing that she talked about, that life just seems so dull in the United States compared to. Um, living in the Soviet Union. I don't know if she ever fully rationalized or justified it. I think she did believe in in socialism as a project. Um, I think joining the Communist Party may be something that she did um, for practical reasons. Lisa Kirschenbaum has also written about her um, in her book that looks at um, the import of the Spanish Civil War and um, in part as a, as a distraction from the Moscow trials, um, but this kind of um, triangle between um, Moscow and um, Barcelona or Madrid and um, New York um, of, these different, of these different migrations. But uh, Bennett was, I think, in Spain when she joined the Communist Party, and it may have been a question of just getting more access um, in joining the party. But um, yeah, I, I just, uh, she was somebody who I, um, I just 
um, I loved reading her work. She also, she also, I thought, um, managed to write these sketches that captured something, the kind of, uh, almost non-political, but the, the, the sort of quotidian, um, poetic aspects of life in Moscow. So she was, she was partly, I just really liked her writing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And you've already mentioned the 22 African-Americans who went to the Soviet Union in the early 1930s for, to participate in this film that in the end didn't get made. But, but again, um, thinking about this idea of looking for, um, looking for a new society uh, that would eradicate um, what were real problems in the United States, how did these, uh, particularly the eight African-American women who are part of this group, see this experience in the Soviet Union? Where, where was it fulfilling for them? And, and where did they see um, conflict between the, the claims of uh, a race-free or a racially blind society and, and the actual practice of, of life in the Soviet Union? Um. I mean, one of the things was that they, um, you know, the Scottsboro case in the United States in which um, a group of, um, I think it was 13 African-American young men, they were called the Scottsboro Boys, but they, no, they weren't 13. I think it was nine of them. The youngest was 13. Um, They were arrested for um, supposedly raping two white women the case generated a ton of attention in the Soviet Union. And so, um, and the faces of the Scottsboro boys, and these these were, I think, mostly illiterate, very working class, very dark skinned. They were everywhere in the Soviet Union. And so when these actors were recruited and arrived, um, the many Russians were disappointed to see these kind of light skinned, well-dressed, um, articulate <laughs> um, African Americans who didn't fit their idea of these kind of ultimate proletarian um, figures of what African Americans were like, and I think um, that was a certain amount of a of a surprise and a disappointment to the African Americans who got there and recognizing that there were certain cultural expectations um, for them, and of course there were also disappointments that. when it started to become clear that the film was not um, going to be um, made. Um, The women in the group were attracted uh, for, for some of the same reasons that white women and Jewish women, other women were, um, were drawn to the Soviet Union, seeing women in all these different kinds of public roles. Um, and they uh, were also really interested in um, members of the group, a, a pretty big portion of the group after the film was canceled, went to um, Soviet Central Asia um, and uh, were looking at the treatment of Soviet national minorities. And there's a lot of interest in the unveiling of, of um, Muslim women and um some of that had actually taken place at gunpoint. It wasn't necessarily this liberatory thing, um, but what they saw it as a totally liberatory thing. And they saw these women who had been, you know, absolutely hidden from public view now unveiling and cutting, bobbing their hair and becoming leaders in their communities and becoming outspoken against violent 
husbands and um, and some of the people they met were dark skinned and looked like them and uh, had assumed this very large role in public life. Uh, and they also, um, you know, they, they themselves were treated like celebrities. There was some awareness, though, of this kind of, um, I don't know what the, treating them as kind of primitives and not really as um, on the same level as other Westerners. So the African-Americans, um, communists, African-American communists who were um, going for um, training in the Soviet Union, they went to a different, they didn't go to the Lenin School, they went to the, um, uh, what is it, KU, um, the, the school for the Toilers of the East, um, and uh, so they were with um, Arab and African um, and Indian cadres um, so that they weren't, um, you know, they were considered sort of um, apart from others. Um, I was also, I was looking at, originally I had had um, that discussion of um, the African-Americans in the film in, um, I, had, I had two chapters that are looking at performance um, so I was interested, other people have written about that film. I was interested in um, thinking about it in terms of performance and this kind of longer history of African-Americans um, in the Soviet Union. And um, in a sense, they were, there was a certain kind of recognition that they were being asked to perform their blackness. There's a striking scene where um, Dorothy West um, met, um, uh, oh gosh, Stanislavski? No, no, it wasn't Stanislavski. Oh my gosh. Met a famous Russian um, theater person whose name is escaping me. And um, he had been told that she was a great dancer. It was somebody did it to make a trick and he was trying to get her to dance and she refused and finally ran out crying and then found out that this was a, that this was a trick play that he had been told that she was this incredible dancer, but she was very so modest that she wouldn't um, perform. Um, so again, this assumption that all, um, that all black people know how to dance and know how to sing and all these stereotypes um, that were there about African-Americans, I think was, it was something that was disappointing to them, mm -hmm. even though there was much that, that really thrilled them, not least of which was going from a segregated society to being treated like royalty <laughs> while they were yeah. there. <laughs> uh, and in your book, you do also look at World War II, and um, obviously there's a change at that point, and, and the Soviet Union and the United States become allies against Nazi Germany. What role did women play in establishing, maintaining, uh, facilitating that relationship as allies in World War II between the Soviet Union and the, and the United States? So... In some ways, they play a um, symbolic role. There's a lot, you know, I find it echoing the, the depictions of women, female revolutionaries. You had a lot in the American press uh, that were looking at women um, who were working as um, snipers or partisans or somehow involved on, in, in military operations, which was quite striking to American women who now were taking roles in factories, but certainly were not in combat like the Russian women. Um, but I also um, talk about 
women like um, particularly Margaret Bourke White and Lillian Hellman, who actually went to the front and were writing um, articles and books. Um, Margaret Bourke White had a radio program with her, um, with her husband at the time um, where they were uh, broadcasting from Russia and she was also doing um, uh, photographs and, and articles. And then Hellman um, worked on a, she was gonna do a documentary that didn't happen, but she worked on a film that became one of the most popular Hollywood films about Russia. Um, so you had women um, as important, these Russian women as important symbols of the bravery of the Russian people, but you also had American women who were, um, in a sense, um, helping to get out those ideas of um, our brave Russian allies and look at the wonderful things they're doing and look at the things that women in particular um, are doing. Um, so yeah, that's what I was that's what I was looking at in that chapter, and um, and I talk about World War II as a kind of moment of of reviving some of the discourses that were really impossible to to, to sustain in the late 1930s during um, the Great Terror, um, and in fact, when it was very hard to say almost anything good about the Soviet Union, you still, and particularly in the left-wing press, find lots of articles about, you know, Russian children and their education and about Russian women and how good they have it with the, you know, the working conditions and the time off from work. So that became a kind of focus at a time that um, many had become very, on the left as well, had become very critical of the Soviet Union, particularly um, you know, with the Moscow trials and the terror and um, then with the Nazi Soviet pact. So the entry of um, United States into World War II as allies of the Russian was becomes a kind of last gasp of this discourse that you see um, in the 20s and um, up until about the mid 1930s. Mm -hmm. So in your epilogue, you turn to the question of American women spying for the Soviets. Um, and Obviously, this is not necessarily something that um, came out of the research that you did. In fact, you um, talk specifically about uh, one case that was explicitly spying. Um, but you do say that the book has addressed question, the question of loyalty. And how do you see that um, in the work that you've done through this book on American women um, traveling to the Soviet Union, living in the Soviet Union, speaking on behalf of the Soviet Union back to the United States and to the bright, broader world. What does that lead you to think about this question of loyalty? Huh. I mean, it's a really, it's a really complicated question because I think You know, most of these women thought of themselves as as internationalists and 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 kind of citizens of the world. Um, but I think in general, they also thought of themselves as good Americans and maybe speaking to a kind of vision of the United States that they feared um, being lost and an overemphasis on kind of capitalist gain um, or whatever. Um, I felt that I had to bring up spying because I didn't want to be accused of 
not examining it as an as an issue. Um, most of the people who went were not spies. <laughs> um, and um, but I did find some examples of people who were and I also found I mean, I think the most striking thing for me in, in researching that question is I started wondering, like, what does it even mean um, to be a spy? Um, and yeah, and again, like, what are what exactly are is one supposed to be loyal to? Are you supposed to be loyal to, you know, my country, right or wrong? Or are you supposed to be loyal to um, an ideal that? you think is just and of course so many people were loyal to so loyal to the ideal of communism that they overlooked so many horrible things that were that were happening in the Soviet Union and so um, at the same time that that same ideal also inspired people um, particularly in the United States to do a lot of really good important stuff like helping um, uh, you know, unemployed and fighting for unions and working for justice for African Americans. There were many um, things that people did. Um, and then the, the, the loyalty question, you know, it made me, particularly in the light of um, McCarthyism and people seeming, feeling like, you know, they were unjustly accused of, again, of what, you know, even being a communist was um, not actually a crime, but by, you know, nobody was, uh, very few people were open communists because it would threaten your, um, threaten your job, your livelihood, your public um, reputation. And, um, and even within the Communist Party, people had um, different kinds of relationships to to the Soviet Union. So, um, so yeah, I kind of move in that chapter between talking about actual questions of espionage to the larger question of what did it mean to devote so much energy to this other country that becomes sort of public enemy number one. Um, for the United States, and what did that mean for their then their own relationship to their to their home country? And um, I think it's different for different um, for different people. There's not a single kind of an answer, um, and different. Um, you know, I was interested in in the ways that people's identities were their whole very identity was shaped by spending time in Russia, um, one of the people we didn't talk about is the dancer Pauline Kohner, but like, and I don't think she was ever in the Communist Party. I'm sure she was never a spy. Um, but this whole part of her, her, her whole dance career was in many ways shaped by the years that she spent um, in the Soviet Union. Um, right around the time that the great terror is starting. And then how do you tell, how do you, how does she tell that story when later in life? Um, so I don't feel that I've really adequately answered that question. No, I mean, I think it's a huge question. And that's yeah. why I uh, wanted to hear some of your thoughts. One of the things I enjoy about this um, 
these podcast interviews when I was listening to them and now um, having an opportunity to host them is that there are big questions that come out of a lot of these books and um, to have a chance to talk through that and not just kind of read a paragraph um, or two is, is really fascinating to me. Um, the other uh, kind of big question or big idea in the book, uh, and you talk about this um, American feminist attraction to Russia telling us something about who and where we are now and about embracing other forms of cruel optimism. What mm-hmm. do you mean by that term? And, and what, stepping back and looking at this as a whole, what, what can we learn about um, um, that, not just about these women, but about sort of bigger questions about how women find their way in society and, and this balance of optimism and, um, and sacrifice or whatever else you mean by that term, cruel optimism. It's quite the, quite the term. It's not my term. I can't take credit for it. The term comes from Lauren um, Berlant and, and it's sort of like, she refers to it as really wanting something that's actually not good for you. Um, and hoping for it, um, that it will happen and it's, and it's, and it's a bad thing for you. Um, I guess I think about other kinds of cruel optimism, like women who, you know, aspire to becoming corporate executives (laughs) and then realize, um, how dissatisfied they are (laughs) when they get to the top of the corporate ladder and what they're sacrificing to get there. And, um, what yeah what what they're giving up um that there i don't think there is a simple solution i think part of the attraction of the soviet union was that it wasn't it wasn't utopian it was actually happening right and they were they were practically going to solve all of these social and economic um issues and you know that it required violence and repression to to do that suggests it's not simple or easy at all. Um, And I do think that there are more equitable and just ways of running a society. Um, You know, some of the Scandinavian countries are doing, um, you know, uh, adapting aspects of of state socialism that are not, you know, certainly not involving this level of of violence um, and and, uh, repression, but I think, I do think we're at this really interesting moment now where um, Russia's very much in the news. Um, They're talking about a kind of second um, Cold War. And we're also at a really interesting moment for women with, um, you know, the the Women's March being the the biggest protest in, I think, ever, world over. And why is it around women that that people are... um, becoming politicized. It was, you know, partly, I think, because of, um, you know, Trump's insulting (laughs) remarks about women. Um, But I think it's this, this kind of recognition of um, here we are in this advanced state and so many things um, haven't, haven't changed, you know, what changed after women, women got the vote, not not very much. And um, the ERA never passed, but what would it have meant if it did actually pass? Like, um, you know, the problems around race 
you know, there's a, there's a kind of optimism that comes after um, the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Um, but then there's a kind of anger and then a disillusionment because these problems of racism and sexism are so deeply entrenched in our society. And so to think that there's going to be some kind of easy, simple solution, I think is a kind of cruel optimism um, because it's, it's, it's not going to be that easy. <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, thank you for talking to us about um, American Girls in Red Russia. And I, this really was a fascinating book. And the the women that you portray are just amazing personalities in their own rights. But it also, as I hope this conversation has shown, raises a lot of really interesting and thought provoking questions about um, both their experiences and how we think about these kinds of utopias and engagement in utopias. So I'd like to close today by um, taking you to the present and ask what you're working on now. So right now I'm doing a, a I'm working on a much more um, kind of limited project, which is nice because this one was uh, a little too vast in scope. I'm just doing a, um, an edition of Madeline uh, Doty's writings on the Russian Revolution. She's mentioned in the book, but she's not a major figure. Um, but there is a series of books being published about Americans encountering, encountering revolutionary Russia. And Doty is an interesting figure. And her account has not gotten as much attention. Uh, she uh, wrote a book called Behind the Battle Lines, which is supposedly focusing on women during World War I. And um, she went to a number of different countries. She said she traveled around the world, but at least half of her book is about Russia because she just pretty serendipitously landed in St. Petersburg, like just days after the Bolshevik coup. And uh, even though she does have a chapter on Russian women, she was sort of too caught up in everything else that was happening to focus exclusively on Russia. So I've just been, you know, wrote an introduction to that. And she's a kind of quintessential new woman. So very interesting um, figure in that way. Um, And then also um, footnoting the, just the portion of the book that's um, dealing with the Bolshevik revolution. And um, looking ahead, I'm also working on an article that's looking at um, the first red scare we're coming in the United States. We're coming up on the anniversary of the first red scare around 1919 and um, the relationship of feminists to that, which is building on an article that I published um, several years back that was looking at the suffrage struggle in the United States and how the Russian Revolution became a, a foil in that. And one of the things that I, that I found in researching um, this book is um, the real interest among feminists in Russia and the Soviet Union was something that historians had been sort of afraid uh, to look at because it would seem to validate the accusations of Bolshevism that were leveled against um, feminists at the time. And um, I think you can talk about their actual interest in Russia uh, without, uh, without validating those claims. So kind of complicating that the story of the relationship between um, feminism and the Red Scare by bringing Russia into that story or the revolution. So those are a couple of the things I'm working on now. (laughs) Yeah, those sound like great projects and will certainly um, contribute even further to the um, scholarly conversation that this book contributes to. 
And so I want to thank you again. I really appreciate that you took the time uh, to talk to me today about this book. And I also want to thank our listeners for joining us. And uh, we hope that you uh, enjoyed this um, interview with Julia Mickenberg and that we look forward to next month's conversation about a new book in Russian studies.